Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist with the Initiative. And before I introduce my guests, I've got a little bit of a farm story to tell you. Because I grew up on the Canadian prairies, and there, if you ever fly over them or over the American Great Plains, you'll see a big checkerboard that's laid out in front of you. All of the farms are square. There are roads that meet on the mile, every mile, stretching for hundreds or thousands of miles in whichever direction you want to look. It's a beautiful checkerboard. That goes back to the Canadian Land Survey from 1871 when they decided, sensibly in my view, to start putting in road allowances because they didn't know where growth was going to happen. They knew that they needed room for the railroads and they knew that they wanted to open things up for development and for homesteading. So they set the access ways to enable whatever future growth might come. The roads all end up meeting on the mile every mile. And for the farm where I grew up, We were surrounded on three sides by actual roads, one a highway, one a gravel road, and one a little dirt track. On the last side, there wasn't any road at all. There was just a paper road, a road allowance. So there was a little bit of a nub track that went to the bush, a no hunting sign that dad had put up there that had been shot through a few times, and no road at all. When I last looked at it on Google Maps, and it's been 20 years since I've been back there, there's a road there now. Like nobody would have ever expected that you'd ever need a road in the, out in the middle of nowhere on that bit. But things happened, and the paper road turned into a real road because over a century ago, somebody had left room for it. With me today, I've got Peter Nunns and Nadine Dodge from the Infrastructure Commission, and they've been looking at how New Zealand plans for infrastructure corridors as well, or in some cases, well, we've been having some issues with it. We don't have the kind of grid that Canada had set up in the 1870s. And retrofitting that kind of thing onto an already developed country is probably a little difficult. We have to make do from where we are. So thank you so much for being with us, Peter and Nadine. We've got two reports in front of us, one protecting land for infrastructure and the other on the inflated land prices that we get just inside of Auckland and other urban rural boundaries. I think that's inextricably linked to our infrastructure provision, but we're mainly going to be looking at infrastructure corridors today. So thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Eric. And just on that example, that family example, you have a, I've got a bit of a family example here as well. As one of my ancestors in New Zealand was a, was a surveyor who arrived in 1840. And if you go to uh, New Plymouth, which he helped to survey, you'll, you'll see how far they managed to get with the grid in central New Plymouth. So, you, you know... Topic of interest to me, right? We wrote this, I was interested in this topic partly because of that family history. But from a sort of professional perspective, I've probably got a slightly different take, right? The example that you're sort of highlighting there about what happens when you do have that grid of infrastructure corridors laid out in advance really sheds a lot of light on this other issue that we're facing, which is this concept of an infrastructure gap or an infrastructure deficit, which we can kind of see all around us in New Zealand, right? It plays out in a lot of ways. But often it takes the form of infrastructure that we would benefit from having, but which we now can't have for some reason or another. And I think when people see this, the obvious response is that this is a money problem. We haven't invested enough to have the infrastructure we need. And what we see sometimes is that money doesn't, you know, it does help, but if you put money in without actually having a place to build things, you're not going to get a lot of infrastructure back out of it. So that's really the, 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 the sort of aim, of aim of this paper, right, is to look at, look at what, what you would need to do in terms of planning and protecting sites for infrastructure in advance 
in order to have the money that we're spending translate into useful infrastructure. Now, to, to lead into this, right, I, I guess there's a lot of reasons that people don't or can't get, you know, protect sites in advance. That, you know, there's a whole, whole barrel of reasons why you can't replicate what was done in the Canadian Plains, for instance. But an obvious one today is that people might not protect sites in advance because they're not sure that they're going to need them. It's costly, it's difficult, and, and as a result, the world's an uncertain place. And I think the default approach to that uncertainty is to just wait and see what happens and respond after the fact. And what the paper that we've published, which my colleague Nadine did the lion's share of the work on, that takes a look at how we should approach infrastructure site protection when we face uncertainty. Basically, what happens when we wait and see versus when we plan and protect land in advance? Oh, that's great. So what's the, I guess, for problem definition, what's the mess that we're currently in? So how do we try and approach designation for getting infrastructure now, and why is it a problem? Yeah, well, if you look at our planning system today, we typically plan for a single most likely future. And I think that that's a lot of where our problems are coming from. That's what the Local Government Act tells councils to do. Look out 30 years ahead and plan for that central future. But unfortunately, the central future rarely happens. And if you end up having a higher population than you thought, you basically are out of luck. And if you look at how we plan for getting infrastructure in advance under our current planning systems, you also have to be certain that you need something in order to be able to get it. And that actually doesn't allow us to be robust to futures that we couldn't plan for. So essentially in the paper, what we're doing is thinking, what could we do to think about the future better? We looked across the literature from overseas and we looked at two examples of that, a simple, straightforward approach and a more complex mathematical one. And then we applied that to two New Zealand examples. Cool. So even before we introduce the uncertainty, though, imagine that I, we knew with certainty that in a decade's time, we would want to start doing something. Is the standard practice here now to purchase options on that land or to designate it now so that we are able to do that in 10 years time because we know with certainty that we're going to do it? Or do we wait for 10 years, have lots of public discussion about well, this project is coming, and then get surprised that the land is suddenly really, really expensive. Like, which, which of those are we stuck with now? We tend to do the latter. And there's a, I, I, I was about to say a lovely case study of this in the paper, and it's not lovely. It's from uh, one of the greenfield areas south of Auckland, the Drury area, the, the Opaheke arterial, right, where the information that council put out recently on development contributions in the area, which is the mechanism for funding a lot of that infrastructure, said basically, here's a road that we don't think we'll need for 30 years. If we buy the site now, it'll cost us, what was it, sort of $80 million, $100 million in land costs, even at the sort of inflated prices. And if we let that land, uh, land price escalation run, it, it might run up to a billion by the time we actually buy the site. And there's a story in there, right, about, about a range of barriers, right? Somebody's going to be looking at that and saying, you know, we need to do something about this and running up against some barrier. Uh, if I were reading that, and if I knew one of the people who owned that land and were thinking about getting rid of it, I'd probably be trying to jump to buy that in advance of you guys trying to get it yourselves, right? Because it sounds like a recipe for free money. I'm not going to give financial advice. <laughs> okay, so we've got that giant problem. So even if we know with certainty that we're going to want to do something in 10 years' time, the way that we go about trying to get the land 
for public works, for infrastructure, means that we're going to be paying way over the odds for it, and some projects wind up being non-viable because of it, even though they would have made sense. And then I guess that just has to get worse when we add in sort of optionality and when we don't know what the future is going to bring. So how, how, how did you guys approach this? Well, I think the first thing that you need to do is actually plan in advance. The system for New Zealand for councils works pretty well because they're supposed to look 30 years into the future and do 10 years budget. So that actually sets them up to have a pretty good idea of what they're likely going to need in, say, 20 years time. Central government doesn't really work that way. There's no mandates for long-term planning. So the first key thing is long-term planning, thinking ahead, not just for today, think about the future. It's somewhat easy if you do that to know what to do when there's certainty. When it's uncertain, things become a lot more complicated. And that's what we looked at in this paper. We looked at two types of infrastructure that kind of had a 60-40 chance of going ahead. So what do you actually do when you only aren't super sure of whether it's going to happen? Does it actually make sense to put up the money now? Or should you just wait and see if population growth actually happens? So what we did is the first one was an actual real-life case study from the 1960s. It was a proposal for Wellington's railway station to be moved from the current location on the edge of the city, would have gone through downtown over to Newtown. That's a really expensive project. And for the size of Wellington, it just didn't stack up in the 60s. They thought it probably would stack up by the 80s, but they didn't do anything. The project actually would have stacked up in the 90s, but unfortunately, by that time, the central city had been developed, all the land was gone, and you just can't build that type of project today. Unfortunately, Wellington is experiencing about $50 million of transport disbenefits every year from not having a railway system in the city itself. But unfortunately, we can't go back in time to 1960s and buy land so that we can build projects today. We only can look forward to the future and buy land so the next generation can build stuff. So had we gone back in time, what would we have done then? Would there have been like a Public Works Act taking in land that's just sitting idle until the 1990s when it's going to be useful? Or would something else have happened? There could have been two approaches to do it. One could have been buying the land in advance and having the government do something with it. Typically in central cities, you use things as car parks or maybe as a temporary park. The other option could have been buying an option or pursuing a designation with the landowners, which would have allowed the landowners to keep doing whatever they were doing with the land, but it would have prevented them from building the apartments and office buildings that are on the land now that we really wouldn't want to tear down central Wellington's office buildings to build a railway line. Yeah, and I guess this would have been a narrow enough track and everything else would have shifted around a little bit so that we wouldn't have uh, a lot of missing housing as consequence now. So one one thing that this, both cases actually illustrated to me, right, is is that there there's a, there's a sort of correlation between the demand for the infrastructure and the difficulty in getting the sites, right? Because you need the office blocks and the apartment towers to make the rail line viable. But the presence of the office blocks in the apartment towers means you can't get the, the sites, mm-hmm. you know, because it's really expensive to buy and knock, knock that stuff down. And this <laughs> is a bit of a, you know, if I, if I had to summarize in like one sentence why this wait and see approach doesn't really work, it's that, right? By the time you need it, the option's gone. 
Uh, I do like uh, sort of option contracting. I suppose I could tell another Manitoba story around infrastructure and option contracting. So there, uh, the power company had wanted to start getting into wind turbines. And near the farm where I'd grown up, they were looking at looking put these, putting these in. But before they went and did any of the mapping to see where they even wanted to put stuff, they went to the local farmers and said, we're not sure whether we want to put a turbine on your land, but we'd like to pay you right now for the right to sometime in the next decade. And if we decide we want to put it up, here's how much we're going to pay you. It was up to them whether they wanted to take or leave the offer. The hydro, the power company would exercise the option if they had enough farmers who were contiguous to each other who'd agreed. And then there's no Public Works Act issues at all, right? Everybody's agreed ahead of time. Yeah, if the power company wants to do this, they can do this. They've paid me, so... I'm to, to, to get that option and I know what my rental payments on the land are going to be for having provided them this option. It let them also avoid what economists worry about as a holdout problem, right? So if we were thinking about that railway corridor, if I know where that thing's going to be going and I'm the last one, I can extract the entire value of the thing by just saying no until they pay me like billions of dollars. If you do it through on, option contracting, there are lots of potential sites, no holdout problem. It's a ni- nice kind of solution. And I guess that also would have come in even in the certainty case. We know that we're going to want to do something in 10 years. Option contracting in advance might get around some of these land value appreciation problems. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. The second case study that we looked at was education, and we actually worked with the Ministry of Education to do it. And I think schools are a really interesting example of that, of a small-scale school. It could go on this site. It could go on that site. It makes a lot of sense to get in in advance of those problems actually occurring. A lot of times when we build our schools, it's a year or two before you need it. By that time, the whole suburb's built out, and you either have to pay the developer a ton of money for the site, or you get the last least attractive site in the entire subdivision. And neither of those are very good outcomes. So the thing, one thing here, right, and and this pushes, you know, highlights the value of what you're talking about in terms of option contracting is the 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 legal tests that you have to pass under the RMA to get a designation you know you've got to be certain that you need you need the project right and you can really only be certain that you need the school when you've got an overfilling school and you know over your existing school is overfilling right and you can't expand it and then you've got to be certain that you actually need that site that that's the site the only site that will work and you can only be certain about that when there's only one remaining site left in the suburb, right? And so, <laughs> you, you know, and I think there's some some reasonable reasons to sort of have a have a, a sort of high test for sort of takings of, of, of property rights and use rights for property, right? But, you know, what what you're saying is is that is that there's other mechanisms there that 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 you can use where you're facing that situation. Yeah, option contracting seems a uh, rights. A consistent way of handling the problem rather than just waiting until the last minute and then telling folks that you're going to take their house away. Yeah. And it's a lot of things to get things right for the Ministry of Education to do that. They actually have to have a budget to start working on a school that they might only need in 10 years time. They actually need to have a future view rather than just a year to year emergency infrastructure view, which I think is often what we're in in New Zealand of just get out of today's problem. Don't really worry about five years from now problem. Yeah. So you guys have put some numbers to this as well, right? So you were looking through the sorts of projects that are unviable because we're paying inflated land costs for the land to underlie the infrastructure as compared to had we taken up an option contracting kind of route, preserving these options for later so that you're not lumping in all of the value of the works into the price of the land. 
what sorts of things get unlocked in your in the simulation work that you guys were doing when we take a better approach? Yeah, so I thought the school's case study was really, really interesting. So this is a very typical situation on the edge of a city. Imagine a big suburb growing, but you don't really know how fast it's going to grow, and you don't know the ultimate population. It could end up being really popular. It could not. In a situation where you just wait and see, let's say there's a 50-50 shot that you actually need the school, in the 50 to 60% of cases where you don't need the school you end up fine. It's fine. I spent no money. I needed nothing. But in the case where you did need the school, we found that if you don't get an option in advance, looking at New Zealand's historic price increases in urban areas, nine out of 10 cases, you can't build the school. And that's a really bad bet to be taking, in my opinion, because it flows into a lot of disbenefits for families. For a single high school, we found that it was $2 million in transport disbenefits per year of traveling to a school 15 to 20 minutes away. That doesn't sound maybe that big, but when you multiply that across all of the growing areas in New Zealand, it's actually a really big number. I worry that it's even worse than that, right? So I, I, I when I was looking through this, it was seeming to me like a lower bound because you think about all the flow-on effects that happen when a community worries that if you allow a few more townhouses or maybe an apartment tower nearby, well, the local school is going to explode. And like, even in places where it's really obvious that the school could expand, like I'm from Candela now, Kashmir Avenue School, great primary school, they've got a giant field. You could put a lot of buildings on that school field. And still at the town hall meetings, Everybody freaks out and they say, oh, well, the, the school will be overwhelmed if you let there be six stories in the town center. Make it happen somewhere else where there's poor people or something. Not not in Kandala. We couldn't do it there. If you keep the options open for growth, if there's more population increase, you get rid of one of the reasons to oppose population increase. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ultimately about you know, the, the better infrastructure angle to this, right, is you've got areas that can grow without experience the same, experiencing the same sort of congestion, right? Congestion of transport, congestion of public, you know, public amenities, of schools, et cetera, right? And when you can mitigate that and have that flex, you know, the, the whole dynamics do actually change, right? It's not a, growth isn't necessarily a zero-sum game. It's actually, it's fine, right? Because it's there's- better some, than fine. Well, there's some flex, right? Yeah. Cool. And the other way that it comes in as a lower bound, I think, was the other report that you guys have been working on recently, looking at the cost of land just inside urban boundaries compared to the cost of land just outside. So just for listeners, it's been infuriating me lately. I've had a couple of columns on this stuff, just repeating the, the work that you guys have done. So a square meter of land just inside of Auckland's urban boundary, so it's urban zoned, is worth about $1,270 more than a square meter of land just outside of the boundary. Now, councils come up with lots of reasons that they don't want to allow urban expansion into what's rural zoned or agricultural zoned. But fundamentally underlying it, at least in my view, is they don't know how to fund and finance the infrastructure for it, in part because we don't have corridor designations. It's, that's exactly it. And I think the, the Supporting Growth Alliance in Auckland, right, which is their sort of network planning for greenfield areas. We, we touched upon this earlier, right, that, that, that road in, in the Drury area that, that's going to be very expensive at the point at which it, it's finally bought and built. There's a couple of really interesting aspects of what they're doing there. And the first thing that I'd say is what they're doing is actually great in a lot of respects. They are actually going out and looking at all the greenfield areas that, they, that, they, that they've got 
in the kind of future urban zone for the next 30 years and saying, let's just plan them all and sort of get out in front of this, at least from a sort of lines on the map structure plan kind of level, right? So that's actually great. The challenge is that, that, that they're still on the back foot, right? Because those areas were rezoned before the, the network plans and the infrastructure uh, plans were in place. And that has two interesting effects. One is that it's been very difficult to know how to price that land if you're a developer looking to buy some of it. Because you don't know what the sort of future infrastructure arrangements are. You don't know where the infrastructure is going to go, right? So there's a risk that, you know, the, the, the cost of the development contributions that you'll have to pay ultimately are, are different than you initially expect. There's a risk that you actually buy a site that's going to be needed for infrastructure later on. And there's ways to sort of be made whole for, for, for that latter issue, right? But it, it, it makes these areas like, it, it does make these areas riskier. The second thing that it does, obviously, is that is that it means that it's more challenging for councils to financially plan, right? And so they're in the position of trying to trying to be a bit more expansive on this, but finding that actually they're still having to work through a lot of drip feeding because you know it's it they're just on the back foot vis-a-vis a, a, a large amount of demand. And I guess I look at that and I think fundamentally. Wouldn't it be great if if we took what we've learned from that process and scaled it up a bit? Yeah, the drip feeding one also annoys me. I was looking recently through the Auckland Future Development Strategy, and that entirely seems to be drip feeding little tiny parcels of land over the next 30 years. It's like a game of musical chairs where you've got nine chairs for 10 people already, and you're going to add another chair as each person comes, but you're always going to be short by one when you want to be ahead of the game by three or four. Is this part of what's driving that drip feed problem, that they've not got the proper corridor designations? I think that's a big part of it, right? Because because you you do you do struggle to keep up, right? If if you're if you're always finding that the land's more expensive than you'd like, you know that cuts into your budget to actually build the things. So your so the amount that you can build actually sort of reduces. You know, it's it's very it's it's a dynamic that's very difficult to get out in front of at the moment. And I do think that you know some more effort probably is needed. Not necessarily more money, but sort of more planning effort, right? To sort of get out in front of it or put us in a position where we can. You can think about corridor protection as a line on a map for a railway station or whatever highway. But another way you could think about it is actually master planning our growth. So instead of drip feeding, actually plan out very well into the future. Oh, this, this area is going to be 20,000 people. What would that look like? Oh, maybe it's a little road today, but maybe it's berms on the side that could be bus lanes in the future. Here's where the town center would look like if it actually needed to service five times the amount of people. I see that as a problem is the drip feeding. What started out as a little teeny tiny town center for 3,000 people, actually five more subdivisions happened behind it. And that town center doesn't work anymore. And if you're not actually putting a fair amount of land aside in advance for tomorrow's problems, you can't let the future generation actually fix those problems. Yeah. And then it manifests in all kinds of areas. So We've been exercised about lack of competition in supermarkets. A lot of that is they just never planned for enough room for supermarkets. So if one of those subdivisions really does grow and you would have wanted to have had maybe a new world next door to the countdown, well, it's only zoned for one of them. So you've got all these local monopolies that come in when more flexible zoning could get a more competitive environment. Unfortunately, the proposed NBEA forbids planners from considering 
the pro-competitive aspects of anything in their planning. So that's a bit of frustrating. Thank you so much. Any last words? Thanks for having us on, Eric. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for doing this work. I love reading what you guys come up with. It's extremely helpful. It always gives me interesting things to be looking at and to be writing columns about. And getting this stuff right really matters. We continue to be in a housing crisis, which is fundamentally, in our view, a or at least speaking for me in a corporate sense, rather than the three people in the room, I don't want to ascribe views to others, but it still seems fundamentally a local government incentives problem compounded by an infrastructure funding and financing and now designation problem. So we just don't have the kind of grid that we had when I was a kid growing up that just made the urban expansion so easy. The grid's already there. You want to have a new subdivision? Well, you've got a square mile of land that's bordered on all four sides by infrastructure or potential infrastructure. It is beautiful. And the more that we can do to get towards that kind of world or keeping options open for it, it's all for the better. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. 